0: Good morning, everybody. We are going to continue our morning in prayer, like normal, praying for an an unreached people group, for another church in our community, and then we'll continue to pray for our new pastor candidate and for this morning. So if you would join me in prayer. Father, we come to you this morning. um, May it be a delight for us to enjoy Fellowship among this body this morning as we worship together and enjoy you. Lord, we want to um, just pray over this morning that um, you would just speak clearly through me, that you would calm many nerves, and that um, your truth would be clearly proclaimed and only your truth. And that may your truth equip and edify this body of your people this morning. Lord, too, we want to lift up another church in our community. Um, This morning, praying for um, Wesley United Methodist Church, Lord, and ask that you would watch over their time this morning, that they would likewise be joining us and the multitude of other churches in this community proclaiming your truth this morning and only your truth. Lord, we ask that you'd watch over um, Pastor Chris Yost and um, just give him your words to speak in a way that will equip and edify that body, and just give him fruitful studies throughout the week, strengthen his um, pastoral ministry, his preaching ministry, strengthen his marriage and his family, Lord. And we ask that you would bring us alongside um, Wesley Methodist Church, alongside all the other churches in our community to enjoy you together as a community, and to put your name and your glory on display throughout all the things that we do. Lord, too, this morning we want to lift up the Avar people group, um, primarily in the caucus regions, um, 840,000 people, Lord, and less than .01% Christian. God, we know that you know and that you are at work among these people, The Lord, this morning we come to you and we ask that you would break down the strongholds of the false teaching of Islam that has captivated these people for so long. Lord, we ask that the handful of Christians that exist out there, that you would strengthen them and encourage them that they may not feel alone or cut off from their people and their culture, but that they would enjoy you and that they would be able to enjoy you with fellow believers among their people. Lord, we ask that you would give them access to the scripture, and that you would raise up people from the surrounding areas, from neighboring countries, from the United States, and even out of this body, even possibly, Lord, that you would send out workers among the of our people, and that you would draw them to you, so that you may be glorified among these people. Lord, we love you. And we ask that you would just bless this morning. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Well, if I'm honest, I I didn't actually think that I would make it to this week. Um, For those of you that don't know, our official due date is on Tuesday. Um, But we're still here. So forgive me if there's a little bit of preparation that... Still needed to be done, and I feel like I'm reading a little bit more this morning. Um, but I also want to thank um, Greg Fields for his um, work the past two weeks that has gone completely unnoticed of preparing an entire sermon these past two weeks in the event that I'm not here at the last minute. Um, so thank you to Greg for that. Um, we talked about when we first got into chapter two that the book of 1 John, and really 2 John as well, Is often looked at as a book that's primarily about Christian spirituality and conduct. What the Christian walk, what walking in the light looks like. But at the same time, this book, this letter, is also just as much, if not more, about right doctrine and belief, especially when it comes to Christology or what we believe about Christ. So again this morning, we're going to be handling some pretty heavy topics. Um, so, should be fun. If you would, um, please stand for the reading of God's Word. We will be in the book of 1 John, in chapter 2, again this morning, starting in verse 18. <clears throat> Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore... We know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are not all they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge, you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know the truth, and because no lie is of the truth. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie. Just as it has taught you, abide in him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And John... He jumps right into this with some big stuff. He says, Children, it is the last hour. As you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. The last hour. What does John mean? He uses a lot of things that are kind of hard to understand sometimes. Does he really mean that it's a final time period of 60 minutes? I think it's safe to say no, because here we are. And also, if he meant 60 minutes, an hour, he probably wouldn't have written a letter, because that hour would have elapsed while he was writing the letter, or shortly thereafter, and there would have been no reason to write the letter. What we see throughout the Bible is there are these mentions of the last day, the last days, or in this case, the last hour. But in many cases... These are speaking about an era as opposed to a particular point in time. We see in Matthew 24, it talks about the signs that will be indicative of this era. It says that um, this age will include many false teachers, as we see here, those who claim to be Christ but are not. There will be wars and rumors of wars, nation rising up against nation, famines, earthquakes, persecution, death, betrayal, lawlessness, and hatred. These are the signs of this last age. Now, it's easy for us to look at this and then look at our worldly context and be like, oh, well, clearly we are right now in this very last day because we see all of these things happening. But these things aren't new either. And more than likely, what John is talking about here is not the last hour chronologically, but the last hour theologically this final era in which these events described are taking place. Throughout history, the church has seen the ebbs and flows of these indicative tragedies. And John is speaking of this era in which these things can, and in his context indeed are, taking place, and indeed this context in which Christ's return is not far off. Now, the Bible's not overly clear on when or what, will take place when this happens, when Christ's return comes. But it is clear that no one will know when and that we need to be prepared because the Lord is near. Now, the presence of these antichrists is indicative of this era. It is a sign of the last hour, the last days. But in fact, it's also a sign that these things are happening precisely as Jesus and the apostles said they would. While there are these various errors and deceptions and falsehoods that are coming to be, it's important for us to be awakened rather than overwhelmed. For we ought to instead conclude that Christ is not far distant and attentively be looking for him so that he doesn't come suddenly. So, what is John talking about, though, with the Antichrist? Who are they, and why are they of concern? See, in English, you have the prefix anti and Christ. So you have this anti, this opposition, this competition with, um, opposite of, or against Christ. In the Greek, similarly here, means it can be this opposition or in place of. So you have these people or these, this antichrist that is in opposition to Christ or in place of Christ. We see that there is one that's coming, and there are many that have already come. Verse 26 tells us that they are trying to deceive the people in John's church. Verse 22 tells us that they lie. They deny that Jesus is the Christ. He says that this is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. Thankfully, for once, John is very clear. He says this is the Antichrist. They deny the Father and the Son. So now we can also verify that John, in talking about the Antichrist, is talking about people. Verse 19 also tells us that they, these people who are Antichrist, went out from us. Now if they went out, they left the church, we are likely then talking about people who are in opposition to, not in place of Christ, to kind of round out our full definition of who he's talking about here. He says, But they went but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. See their opposition to Christ led them out of the church, out of fellowship among God's people. And although they were among the church at one point, they were not of the church. And this is evidenced by their leaving the church, and their departure. Has made it evident that they never really belonged to this fellowship. These are the people that John has been alluding to throughout this entire book so far. Clearly, now he is addressing them. They were clearly people in the congregation who had begun presenting some new teaching that was contrary to that which we've heard from the beginning. John says that over and over again the message from the beginning. Their teaching also, we see here, involved denying that Jesus is the Christ. So what exactly did they deny Jesus is the Christ? Well, considering that they had been in the church body, that they were part of a Christian church, they likely did not disagree with the fact of the Christ. They were probably there and agreed that the Christ had come and that they were following Christ. They also, as John talks about the anointing that we receive in this passage, they also would have claimed claimed an anointing of the Spirit. But what they would have done on top of that is they would have claimed a special anointing. And that's based on what the context was as far as known false teachings at the time. And it's kind of hard to argue with someone that's claiming to teach with the authority of the Spirit. But what we see here is that their doctrine reveals a departure from the established truth and eventually a departure from the church. Their special knowledge led them to a belief in a superior spiritual life over the material, which then eventually led to a complete separation between material and spiritual, and therefore a redefinition of the already established doctrine of the Incarnation. Essentially, they would have likely believed in the material Jesus and the spiritual Christ, but not that they were always one and the same. This is how they were denying that Jesus is the Christ. They likely believed, as um, we know from the context, that there were false teachers who taught at the time that the Christ came upon this physical Jesus and then left prior to the crucifixion. This is likely what they were teaching in that context. And John addresses this more clearly. You see later on in the letter where this is coming from, where he talks about how Jesus came by the water and the blood. We won't get into that this morning, but all of this is based on what the letter of 1 John says. And John, in his dualistic approach, he leaves really no room for gray area when it comes to these foundational doctrines. He's saying that to deny that Jesus, the historical person, is the Christ, the Son of God, sent from the Father, is to be against him. You're either with Jesus, who is the Christ, or against him. This is made further clear in verse 23 when he says, "...no one who denies the Son has the Father." So he's talking about the Antichrist, Antichrists, and also this being Antichrist. It's kind of confusing. We don't really know what is being talked about with this Antichrist in its fullness. In fact, the word that is commonly used when you talk like eschatology, um, you look at the Antichrist, that word is only used in John's letters. But you see in Mark in Matthew's Gospels is this talk of false Christ who will come. In 2 Thessalonians, you see Paul talk about this man of lawlessness who will come and even take his place sitting in the temple. It's not overly clear what all this means or how it will play out. But what is clear, what John is pointing out here, is that anti-Christian forces will manifest themselves in opposition to Christ and his church in every generation until Christ returns in the fullness of his completed work. This is what John is talking about here. These anti-Christian forces will manifest themselves in opposition to Christ and his church in every generation until Christ returns in the fullness of his completed work. See, what John's doing here is he's reinforcing what we talked about last week, the distinction between the church and the world He's saying there is truth, and that truth is worth fighting for and enduring this opposition. And sometimes we in our culture that's very relative, where the truth changes as the wind blows, we tend to downplay these warnings because we know that in here we have our truth. We have our truth. We don't think that we are in danger. But what happens when, as in the case of John's church, this worldly attack this worldly attack on truth comes not from the outside, but from within the church. If our truth is not held firm in the truth, then we are given away to the relativism of our culture. And then if there's no distinction between the church and the surrounding world, the church and its distorted message will go the way of the world. And we will be tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, and deceitful schemes, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 4. This time of the last days, or the last hour, is marked by worldly hostility towards the church. Now sometimes this will be direct persecution, such as the case, especially in their context, where they were putting up against the worldly influences of Ephesus, the persecution from Rome at the hand of Nero. And other times, this will come from false teaching within the church. And sometimes that false teaching can accomplish what even Emperor Nero in his great persecution could not. You see the church here that John is writing to has been split and has been hurt by these false teachings. So John's saying, don't just guard against external threats that are easier to distinguish, but guard against the internal threats that are deceptive and can destroy the church from within. Historically, these internal threats to foundational truth often begin with Christology. What is our doctrine about Christ? You see that here in John's context, and we still see that in our context there's some form of denying either the fullness of Jesus' humanity or the fullness of his deity. In our context, a denial of Jesus' humanity may look more like denying the historicity of Jesus, denying that he ever actually existed as a real person, but saying instead that he was a poster child that was made up representative of this good moral movement. On the other hand, There are a lot of views today that say Jesus did exist and was a real person, but he was just a really good teacher and a good speaker. And after his death, his followers made him into something more than he ever claimed to be, making him God, just like the Romans would have done for their heroes. These deceptive false teachings are not new, nor are they going to go away. False teachings have existed throughout history. Most of our New Testament letters combat some form of false teaching, at least in passing, if not being the whole reason for the letter. In the early church, after the apostolic era, you see these church councils, starting in the early 4th century, you see they organized to bring all the church leaders together to clearly refute false teaching and define true doctrine, and then make it more accessible by writing that doctrine down in these early church creeds that we have. And you see the first of these councils dealt specifically with refuting false teaching about Christology, about what we believe about Christ. During the Reformation, the 16th century reformers continued to root out false teaching within the church, specifically within the Catholic Church. And today, even, we have entire religions, both new and old, and some popping up every week, it seems like, that may have began with Christian ideas, may even use the Bible, or at least claim the Bible is true and good, but then they have added more informed knowledge or special revelation, and they've established entire new religions that started with truth, but it wasn't grounded in that truth going forward. All throughout history, false teachings have been a recurring issue within the church among even those who claimed to be of the church and then at one point left. And we don't know any details of who these antichrists were in John's church. We don't know their names, but I would like to think that some of them were named fun things like, you know, Bartholomew. And maybe there's probably a James or a John, because that's very common. And I would like to think that at least one of them was named Doug. Maybe. You see, when I was in college, uh, the dorm that I lived in for my first two years um, was kind of split in the middle. It was a group of four different dorms um, that were built in the late 40s, early 50s, and my dorm was the only one on campus that was split right down the middle. Each floor had two halves. Now, one half, you had the holistic living community that really was no different than any other dorm, other than it had that title. And then on the other half was the only place on campus where you could have alcohol. It was the over-21 dorm. I guess they thought it was safer to put those two together uh, than putting the alcohol allowed with the other dorms. But we shared on the ground floor, a common living space, or like a open space. There was a kitchen, a bunch of couches, a TV, some video games, that sort of stuff. And there was this guy that I got to know. I didn't know him super well, but um, his name was Doug. He lived down there. Um, He spent a lot of time in that common space, and we'd play pool, and he'd, you know, you'd walk down there in the middle of the night, and he'd be up playing video games with other people. And Doug seemed like a a simp, A normal college student. Um, Like many uh, people of a particular major, um, at least at my school, he didn't shower very often and he would stay up all night playing video games instead of doing homework or sleeping. And then he would go on campus in the middle of the day. He had a backpack and just seemed like a normal guy but we came back after Christmas break and Doug wasn't there anymore. We tried to figure out what happened to Doug and after a little while we found out that during Christmas break, Doug had been caught trying to break into another dorm for somewhere to live and had been arrested. This guy was not a college student. He was a homeless man that was living in our open space in our dorm. I think at some point he had been a college student, so he knew how to look like a college student. He acted like a college student. He smelled like a college student. He slept like a college student. And we found out later that some of the upperclassmen who blamed all the freshmen for stealing their pizza out of the fridge, he also ate like a college student. It was not the freshmen. You see, Doug, was not a student. But he was only revealed that he was not a student by his departure. And after that departure, we realized that some of his beliefs and his teachings were not grounded in the school, but they were his own. And his conduct also did not fully reflect because he was stealing pizza. This is what's going on in the church. It can be hard to perceive what John is talking about here, these antichrists that are in the church. So it brings up the question of how then do we, what does this say about divisions in the church? See, John in his letter is telling us that mere recognition of error, of false teaching is not enough, but that error must be contradicted by holding fast to the truth and living it out. Valuing unity in the church is paramount, But at the same time, we ought not value unity so much that we do not properly guard the church from false teaching. Unity that is not based in the truth that we have had from the beginning, the word, and confirmed by the Holy Spirit, may not be unity worth cherishing. What John is telling us here, though, is that there may be those among us who seem to be aligned with us, but reveal themselves in time that they are not. We also know that the Bible teaches us there will be divisions even within the church. You see in the Gospels this picture of wheat and chaff lying intermixed on the threshing floor. And it's only until the Lord comes and separates them with his winnowing fork and with fire that the true wheat is revealed. John 15 talks about These vines that are on the branch, but they're not connected to or abiding in the branch. Therefore, they are bearing no fruit, and they eventually wither and are removed and burned. And perhaps most clearly, Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, says, after having just told them and exhorting them to have no divisions among them, he says that indeed, there must be factions factions among you in order that division or in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. They may look, talk and even outwardly act like us but in time they reveal they were never of us through their false beliefs and eventually a departure from the church. Just like Doug was revealed only through his departure from the dorm. So how then do we guard against these antichrists and their deceptive false teaching? Well, let's go back to our passage and see what John has to say. Verse 20, he says, But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you, have, you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. Here we see that John is creating this contrast, the knowledge of the true believer and with that of the knowledge of the Antichrist. We talked a few weeks ago about how these deceivers have placed special emphasis on knowledge, particularly on their brand new and enlightened knowledge. Their new teachings originated in this new knowledge. And John, in contrast to that, is continually pointing back to the knowledge that you have had from the beginning, from which their new knowledge Has departed, leaving behind, as they may have said, this antiquated foundation of the church in place of this new, exciting truth that they claim to have. And in pursuit of this new and exciting truth, the deceivers are revealed as the Antichrists. They were essentially precursors to the Gnostics who came on the scene a little bit later and would formally. Basically, essentially, they would idolize knowledge. Now, looking at this picture of how this played out, still, over a millennium and a half later from when John writes this, Calvin recounts this continuing issue, and he describes this allure of this new knowledge as leading not so much as to error as to complete madness. He says, those who in rejecting the scripture, imagine that they have some peculiar way of penetrating to God, are to be deemed not so much under the influence of error as madness. For certain giddy men have lately appeared who, while they make a great display of the superiority of the spirit, reject all the reading of the scriptures themselves, and they deride the simplicity of those who delight in what they call the dead and deadly letter." But I wish they would tell me what spirit, it is with, <clears throat> what spirit it is whose interpretation raises them to such a sublime height that they dare despise the doctrine of the Scripture as mean and childish. If they answer that it is the Spirit of Christ, their confidence is exceedingly ridiculous, since they will, I presume, admit that the apostles and other believers in the primitive church were not illuminated by any other spirit. And none of these thereby learn to despise the Word of God, but everyone who is imbued with it with greater reverence for it. See, the Spirit does not teach us to depart from the Word, but it teaches us to have a greater reverence for the established doctrine that has been around since the beginning. We see also in our passage that John is introducing this little play on words. You have the Antichrist, Christ, and now the Greek word chrisma, which is from the same root word. See, Christ is not Jesus' last name, right? Hopefully we've all heard that before. But it's a title saying that he is the Messiah, the Anointed One. So you have the Anointed One, the Anti-Anointed One, and then you have In verse 20, it says, But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. John's now saying that you, those faithful people who remain in the church, have an anointing. His play on word of all these anointings. Now, this verse 20 is a little bit confusing. It says, You all have knowledge. Other translations say, you have all knowledge. And then there's other variations of that as well. But in the original Greek, it could simply say, all knowledge. But you have been anointed by the Holy One and all knowledge. And I think that fits with what John's trying to say here. John is saying that in contrast to those who are in opposition to Christ, the Anointed One, not only do we have right knowledge of the Anointed One, but we have all knowledge, and we ourselves have an anointing from the Holy One. Now, to anoint, again, is probably not something we use in daily language. And in the Greek, it simply means to rub on. This could be paint or oil or medicine, etc. But throughout the scriptures, anointing has this theme of referring to the gift of the Holy Spirit. You see it in the Old Testament This anointing legitimizes the rule of a king. It legitimizes the authority of a prophet. And it legitimizes and describes the coming Messiah, the coming anointed one. Isaiah, in chapter 61, verse 1, says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He's appealing to this anointing from the Lord as his authority as a prophet. And then as he speaks in chapter 11 about the coming of the anointed one, he says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, and the spirit of counsel and might, and the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22, he says, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put a seal on you and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Again, in Ephesians 1, it says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. See, John is saying here, he's appealing to this fact that as believers, we have been anointed by God with the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Holy Trinity. This is the only true special anointing. There is no other to be found, no matter how enlightened you may become. At the beginning of the chapter, we see John describe Jesus as our advocate with the Father, this advocate coming from the word that is clearly translated in English as paraclete, uh, but then translated to advocate for more understandability. But here John is pointing back to all the other uses of that Greek word in his gospel where it is talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit, who is our comforter, our helper, the promised counselor. In John 14, 15, and 17, Jesus says, "'If you love me, you will keep my commandments.'" And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, another paraclete, to be with you forever, even in the Spirit of truth, whom the the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So what does the Spirit have to do with the Antichrists? Well, in short, the answer is everything. Picking up the quote from Calvin earlier, he asked the same question. He says, What kind of spirit did our Savior promise to send? The answer is, The one who should not speak of himself, but suggests and instills the truth which he had delivered through the word. John says in chapter 16, 13, and 14, When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears from the Father, he will speak. Whatever, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. And he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine, what I have spoken to you, and he will continue to declare it to you. Again, in chapter 14 of John's Gospel, verse 25 and 26, he says, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Paraclete, the Holy Spirit, Whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, and will bring you, bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Hence this office of the Spirit is promised to us. It is not to form some new unheard-of revelations or to coin a new form of doctrine by which we may be led astray from this doctrine that we've already received. But the Spirit is sent as a seal on our minds for the very doctrine that the gospel recommends. The Spirit is the divine teacher given to each and every believer. There is no additional secret knowledge to be had, nothing to be clued in on, or something that's restricted to the top few elitists. If you have God's Word in your hand and God's Spirit in your heart, you have everything you need to know and grow in Christ. The Spirit will never contradict the established truth in the Word. It will only affirm it. The Spirit will never go beyond the established truth in the Word as if there were something more that's needed. The Scripture, as we have had from the beginning, is therefore authoritative, needing neither addition nor revision. This quest for novelty that has continued through the ages is an endless pursuit and it is of a different kind of spirit. The Spirit is sent by the Son from the Father and is within us as a helper to remind us of that which the Son had from the beginning, what the Son heard from the beginning from the Father, and what the Son then taught his disciples. The Spirit is also the seal of the new covenant where God says, For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Through the Spirit, we are reminded of the message that was proclaimed from the beginning, and have, as John says in verses 26 and 27, we have no need that anyone should teach us, but his anointing teaches us about everything. And it is true and is no lie. John is not saying that we don't ever need to be taught, but the Holy Spirit grounds our teaching in God's truths, in the Word, and as gifts, He gives to us those who teach and preach and pastor, along with the gifts of wisdom and discernment. Notice, though, that the power to teach and discern does not come from the person, but it is a gift from the Father, through the Spirit. And John makes it clear that they definitely don't need in his church, that we definitely don't need in our church, any sort of self-derived teaching because that is from the Antichrists. The Spirit plays another role. As we looked at earlier when we looked at the passages in 2 Corinthians and Ephesians 1, the Spirit also acts as a seal, as a guarantee of God's promise to his people. Now this talk about those who are among the church but were revealed to be antichrist and left may have you questioning, having some doubts. How do I really know that I'm not some secret sleeper cell antichrist? Well, the Spirit answers that. And to quote someone that puts it better than I can, um, Sinclair Ferguson in his book, The Whole Christ, he reflects on the Spirit's role in this, the the role in our our assurance. He says that assurance is ours because of a three-dimensional ministry of the Spirit. One, he shines a light on the Word of God and especially on the saving promises of God and gives light in the soul. Two, he shines on his own work in our hearts. So that we may see the harmony in our lives between justification and sanctification always in the context of faith. And three, he acts from time to time in such a way that he bears witness with our spirits and thus to us that we are God's children. Now, we're going to look at each of these three points real quick to understand exactly what he's saying here. Number one, The Spirit shines a light on the Word of God and especially on the saving promises of God and gives light to the soul. We've already discussed how the Spirit teaches and protects the truth of the Word. But what does the Word tell us? There are a lot of promises in the Bible. But we have here in John's letter one promise mentioned specifically. In verse 25, he says, And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. Right? We've seen this in John's gospel in verse 3 or chapter 3 verse 16 it says whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Through the spirit's confirmation of the word, we can have access to this assurance and the assurance of eternal life. That those who are in Christ can have assurance of salvation and have access to the Father in this eternal life. John also tells in his gospel, chapter 6, verse 37, he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Chapter 10, verse 28, he says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Those given to the Son by the Father can neither be snatched out or cast out. Instead, as John says in our passage, you abide in him. Now, where it says this in verse 27, I'm going to read that from the New English Translation because it presents this abiding as an indicative. Whereas most other translations present this as an imperative, as a command, that because of all this, you need to abide in him. But the way it's written here, I think, reflects more of what John's teaching as well as what the original language is trying to say, too. Verse 27 from our passage says, Now, as for you, the anointing that you have received from him resides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things, it is true and it is not a lie. Just as it has taught you, you reside in him, or you abide in him. Just as it has taught you, you abide in him. John goes on to say in chapter 4, verse 13 of the letter, says, By this we may know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us his spirit. In chapter 5, verse 13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. In the Spirit, these truths that we find in the Word, they illuminate and they give light to the dead and dark soul. They give glimpses of it in its culmination as well. See, not only can we have assurance of our eternal life, but through our fellowship with the Father and the Son, through the Spirit, we can enjoy aspects of that eternal life in the here and now, together in the church. Number two, the Spirit shines on his own work in our hearts so that we may see the harmony in our lives between justification and sanctification. This is what John already talked about in chapter 2 of the letter. We discussed this assurance a couple weeks ago. And our summary for that week was that assurance of salvation is evidenced by the process of sanctification, which is possible because of the propitiation and advocation or justification, of Jesus. The justification found through the propitiation and advocation of Jesus. And that process is evident in obeying his commands, not the least of which is to love one another, as we talked about a couple weeks ago. Ferguson goes on to say on this point that a high degree of Christian assurance is simply not compatible with low levels of obedience. If Christ is not actually saving us and producing in us the obedience of faith in our struggle against the world, the flesh, and the devil, a.k.a. this sanctification, then our confidence that he is our Savior is bound to be undermined, perhaps imperceptibly at first, but more and more over time. So you see, the Spirit Works out and is at work in the process of sanctification within us. And in that we can have assurance. Number three, the Spirit acts from time to time in such a way that He bears witness with our spirits and thus to us that we are God's children. I don't want to get into this too much because John does in the next chapter. But we know that in the garden, Jesus prayed to God on the night of his crucifixion, and he said, Abba, Father, take this cup from me. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, verses 15 and 16, the spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Because of the work of Christ, through the Spirit, we can approach the Father using the same language as the Son, because we are adopted as true children of God. Please pray with me. Father, may we recognize truth and refute error. May our pursuit of truth not merely give us intellectual um, intellectual knowledge, but may your truth, your reality, be the heartbeat of our lives. May your truth move us to your work, and may you protect and preserve your people, and may we rest firmly in the knowledge that those whom you have given, those whom you have given the Son can never be taken away. May we hope in the final culmination in eternal life that you have promised and enjoy the spirit and the first fruits of the glory of your kingdom in the here and now. May we be realistic about the enemy and more confident in our Savior. Lord, we thank you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.